rulers remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Welcome, Christian Israel. Pastor Eli James here. This is September 10th, 2022. And uh, just a quick announcement here that uh, Alfred Schaefer is going to be my guest tomorrow on Bloodlines. He was recently released from jail in Germany. He's still in Germany, but he does not fear any reprisals regarding any free speech issues that might come up in our interview tomorrow. So, very much looking forward to that. And as it turns out, it's the anniversary of 9-11, so, uh, see, 2011, 2021 is 10, 20, 10, so it's uh, 21 years, 21 years since uh, 9-11, 2001, and uh, it's going to be a really good show. He says he's got new information that has uh, never been revealed before that was actually given to him by the German police. And, well, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Well, I'll leave the rest to him because <laughs> I don't want to get anybody in trouble. But uh, they gave it to him. And uh, it basically didn't say why they gave it to him. They just gave it to him. And probably because they knew he would be able to do something positive with it. All right. Because we all know that uh, the, the Jews aren't loved by anybody. They don't even love each other. The only people that love the Jews are the Judeo-Christians who falsely believe that they're the Israelites of the Bible. So those are the only group of people that have been buffaloed. A friend of mine used that word today. I haven't used that. I've used all kinds of synonyms for deceived, (laughs) like flummoxed. Uh, But buffaloed is a good one. The Judeo-Christians have been buffaloed by the Jews who pretend to be Israel. We, of course, know that they are Edomites. So I'm just going to go into the scriptures in which these the arguments for the Romans killing Christ don't exist. <laughs> okay, that's pretty much the long and the short of it. There is no argument in Scripture, anywhere, that even remotely suggests that the Jews were not responsible for the killing of the Christ, the Yahshua Messiah. And so we're going to go through those uh, passages in in the four Gospels, and then we're going to uh, do supplemental material that pertains to the subject and Let's see here. We got Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. So it's uh, very near the end of 
the Gospel of Matthew. But let me go just take a quick look at Matthew chapter 26 because sometimes uh, the argument comes from the preceding chapter. Yes, okay. Yeah, this is very important because in Matthew chapter 26, it talks about Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. And it's very obvious that the Romans did not subject Yahshua to any trial whatsoever. The Romans had no interest in killing him or even prosecuting him. As as Pontius Pilate said numerous times, I find no fault in this man. I find no fault in him. It was only the Edomite Jews and the Sanhedrin, which was composed primarily of Pharisees and Sadducees, and I guess a few lawyers as well, scribes, scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees, none of whom were really upholding the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form. They were frequently accused by Yahshua of making up their own law and not abiding to the Mosaic law. Jesus said, if you had believed Moses, you would believe me. So it's quite obvious they don't believe Moses. (laughs) Otherwise, he would not have said that had you believed Moses, you would believe me. So, but first, I would like to quote a Judeo-Christian who argues that the Romans didn't, in fact, you know, kill Messiah. So here we have an example of a Judeo pulpit master who is making excuses for the Jews by making false arguments here, okay? And so I'll put this. This is Washington University in St. Louis, and there's no end of Judeo-Christian arguments for the execution of Christ by the Romans. They, they tend to make arguments in favor of the Jews and against the Romans constantly, despite the obvious evidence to the contrary in the scriptures. I mean, there's nothing in scriptures that even remotely suggests that Yahshua was killed by the Romans, uh, especially because Pontius Pilate, who was the official representative of Rome in Judea, never found any fault in him and tried to release him. It took many pains to try to release him. But here is Washington University in St. Louis. It's called The Source Newsroom. Romans are to blame for the death of Jesus. And this is actually a commentary on Mel Gibson's movie, Mel Gibson's new movie, Stirs Religious Controversy, by Neil Schoenherr, February 18, 2004. But the arguments uh, exonerating the Jews by Judeo pulpit bastards are too numerous to count. So we'll just pick on one. And this, again, is Schoenhauber or whatever. Neil Schoenherr. But there's a picture here of someone by the name of Frank Flynn. 
So we'll find out who that person is. The soon-to-be-released Mel Gibson movie, The Passion of the Christ, is creating quite a stir among religious experts, as well as laypeople. Many say the movie has anti-Semitic overtones, that is, anti-Jewish, because the Jews aren't Shemites. But according to Frank K. Flynn, Ph.D., professor of religious studies at Washington University in St. Louis, boo, the Jews had nothing to do with killing Jesus. How, How much did he have to be bribed in order to say that? The Romans are actually to blame, he says. Quote, had the Jewish authorities been directly involved, Jesus would have been stoned, as Stephen was in Act 7, Flynn said. Only Roman authorities could authorize crucifixions, and they often did so on a gruesome, massive scale. Unquote. Well, that statement is only partially true, which is common for Judeo-Christian apologists. It's not true that the Romans, well, let's put it this way. Yes, it was true that the Pharisees couldn't crucify Christ, but neither could they kill him by any other means, (laughs) including stoning. The, The passage in Acts 7 was much later in time, during a period after Pontius Pilate had left, and there was pretty much anarchy prevailing in Judea. So they didn't have a strong figure like Pontius Pilate to take charge and prevent the execution, which in, in the Gospels, the Sanhedrin even admit that we cannot, we cannot execute somebody without the permission of the Romans. They admit that, okay? So from biblical hermeneutics, there's an interesting discussion about this. In the time of Jesus, were the Jewish authorities allowed to execute? In the gospel accounts of the trial of Jesus, we learned that the Jewish authorities could not sentence anyone to death. Pilate said, quote, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law, unquote. And they answered, But we have no right to execute anyone, unquote. They objected. That's John 18.31, and we will uh, probably read that toward the end of the show today. That's the NIV. But it's easy to get confused because the citizens of Jerusalem were later stoning Stephen to death. When the members of the Sanhedrin, this is now Acts 7, 54 to 60, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Quote, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, unquote. At this, they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, or fainted. Again, Acts 7 54 to 60, NIV. And one person comments here. You might argue that they were not authorized to do this, but they did it out of pure rage. But they had enough presence of mind to put their coats at the feet of Saul. Well, they didn't want to get their coats dirty (laughs) or have them soaked with blood, right? 
Are these texts reconcilable against what we know of contemporary systems? The person next says, My interpretation is that the Jewish leaders said that to Pilate to get him to crucify Jesus because they wanted him crucified rather than stoned. It's not the narrator saying it is the characters. That's important. Relevant. Josephus in Antiquities describes how for just a few months in 62 AD, there was no Roman procurator over Judea. While the next procurator was still on his way, the high priest Hananiah ben Hananiah arranged for criminal trials against his political enemies in order to have them executed. Josephus doesn't say it directly, but this would suggest local executions had to be approved by the Roman authority and the high priest took advantage of the power vacuum. Okay, so this is obvious. Obviously, the Sanhedrin would have executed Stephen because there was no awareness of who Stephen was by the Romans, and there certainly was no powerful figure such as Pontius Pilate to resist this act by the Jews. Okay, so let's continue with the article that we have here. Uh, are the Romans are to blame for the death of Jesus. He insists. Okay, this is Frank Flynn. Flynn, an expert on Catholicism, said Gibson's movie seems to merge all of the gospel stories about the passion into one epic, a made-for-the-big-screen story that fails to show how opinions about the Jews' role in the crucifixion have changed dramatically over time. Yeah, and why have they changed? Why have Christian opinions or Judeo-theologian opinions changed over time? Is there any new evidence to make them change their minds? Or has there been a Jewish campaign to take control, like bribery, uh, what do you call it, smearing, smear tactics, etc., to get the Judeo-Christian pastors in line so they can't extract the evidence from the scriptures? That's obviously what has happened, folks, and Frank Flynn is one of those patsies who has probably been bribed to say what he's saying, okay? So, yeah, the, the opinions of the Jews executing Christ has changed in the 20th century, but not for any valid reasons, only to appease the Jews for fear of the Jews, So whether opinions have changed dramatically is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the evidence, and he doesn't talk about any evidence. He notes that our earliest accounts of the crucifixion, such as the Gospel of Mark written circa 60, 70, he uses CE, it should be AD, make clear that that was Pilate who had Christ crucified. No, it doesn't make that clear. What's made clear in all four Gospels is that Pilate tried to free Yahshua and to discourage the Sanhedrin from executing him. Gospels written much later, such as those of Matthew and Luke, reflect different interests and viewpoints, and each places more and more blame on the Jews. They all blame the Jews, every single one of them. Quote, Matthew, probably because of inter-Jewish rivalry, puts the, uh, the ultimate blame squarely on the shoulders of the Jewish authorities. There you go. Okay, so modern opinions be damned. Uh, 
He admits that Matthew blames the Jews, Flynn said. In Luke, the, quote, whitewash of the Romans becomes nearly complete. Whitewash? No, the evidence is right there in the Gospels. By the Middle Ages, the epithet Christ killers became the verbal club to justify ghettoization, persecution, and murder of Jews. No, that wasn't the only problem. It was Jewish usury and their ghettoization of Christian society that was responsible for the reaction. It wasn't persecution of Jews. It was the reaction against the Jews. And of course, they freely admit that they were kicked out of at least 100 city-states in Europe. And of course, they blame the Christians. It's always the Christians' fault if you believe the Jews. So a theologian like this person would simply accept Jewish excuses without actually looking at any evidence. So anyway, we all know the end term of this lamentable history. Of course, he's referring to the Holocaust. Another fact in question. So, He's invoking the Holocaust. He's denying the obvious, although he does admit that the, at least one of the Gospels clearly states that the Jews are responsible for the execution of Christ. Okay, so I'm going to save the rest of this for later. If we get to, if we run out of time or have extra, extra time, I'll save this for later. And I'll put this again into the chat room for those who want to read this later and I'll include it in the show description. So, again, these excuses being made by Judeo-Christians constantly. All right, so let's get into... Oh, first of all, let me just quickly announce, number one, that Dave Gehari and I are working on a final edition, a third edition, actually, of The Great Impersonation, how the Antichrist had deceived the whole world. It's going to be a 6 by 9 version, and uh, it'll be published directly by uh, his publishing company, which also publishes uh, Andrew Carrington Hitchcock's Synagogue of Satan. So those two volumes, uh, my book and his book, really go together. As I've said many times, my book ends where Andy's book picks up because I, I just barely scratched the surface about how the Rothschilds have taken over the world in the Great Impersonation. And Andrew Character Hitchcock's book on that subject, The Synagogue of Satan, documents the entirety of the Rothschild dynasty's perfidy against Christianity and the white race. So those two books actually go together. So you can consider, since his was published first by David Gehari, I guess the great impersonation would count as a prequel to the synagogue of Satan. So we're working on that, but we still have a few uh, copies of the old eight and a half by 11 left. If you're interested, you can get a copy for $40 and send that to ANP 900 Commerce Place, number 1016, Forsyth, Illinois, 62535. Again, that's ANP, 900 Commerce Place, number 1016, Forsyth, Illinois, 62535. And uh, I'm hoping that we will have the new edition out by the end of the month. 
So and plus also you can send donations to that address as well. So let's continue. So let's get into the gospel accounts here. Matthew chapter 27. I think I backed up to chapter 26 because the story actually begins there. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. Okay. Now, in Josephus's Antiquities, he describes how Herod had executed the entire Judahite Sanhedrin and replaced them with his cronies. And he was in the process of executing any Judahite of importance, including the various kings of Judah, after he was installed by Rome. Yes, he was installed by Rome. Antipater, his father, was also installed by Rome as a governor over Judea, meaning governor over the Judahites. But the, the initial thrust was started by Antipater, Herod's father, who bribed Julius Caesar a great sum of money to install him as governor of Judea. And likewise, a great sum of money to install Herod as governor of Galilee, from which he, with Mark Antony, invaded the city of Jerusalem and took over. So the initial idea was not a Roman idea. It was a Jewish, an Edomite Jewish idea. And we're going to find that this is very important when we get to the punchline in John 19.11. So let's continue. So here we have who is being assembled, who laid hands on Jesus. Was it the Roman soldiers or was it Caiaphas, the high priest? And also, by the way, Caiaphas was not a legitimate high priest of Judah because you had to be a Judahite to be the high priest but these various high priests, after the death, oh, I can't remember, uh, Josephus tells us who the last legitimate Judahite high priest was. It might have been Simeus, if I'm not mistaken. There may have been one more after Simeus. But that is a hereditary position that can be fulfilled only by the sons of Levi and or related tri tribes of the house of Judah. Those are the only ones. No outside race, such as Edomites, can ever be high priest over the house of Judah or any Israelite tribe. So, so he was installed probably by Roman power or maybe by Herod himself. It's quite possible that Herod the Edomite had placed Caiaphas in this position of authority illegitimately, okay, by usurpation. Verse 58. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Okay, so where was the trial of Jesus being held? Was it being held by Romans or by Edomites? I mean, all of these, all of these bits and pieces count as evidence. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to keep tab. All right, so there are two pieces of evidence that it was the 
Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas as high priest who wanted to have Jesus executed. The Romans were not involved in this at all. It's very clear. So we have two different pieces of evidence already. Number one, that it was Caiaphas, not Pontius Pilate or any Roman, who had him arrested, led him away, okay, and brought him to Caiaphas. And then uh, Peter actually was a witness at the high priest's palace where he was interrogated. That's two pieces of evidence against the Roman execution of Christ. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. So that's three pieces of evidence against the Jews. The Romans having nothing to do with this either. Verse 60. But found none, yea, though many false witnesses came, yet found they none. At the last came two false witnesses. So, item number four. Two false witnesses brought Who Who brought these false witnesses? Pontius Pilate or the Sanhedrin? Verse 61 and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Well, he was, whoever this false witness was, should have known that Yahshua was speaking of his own body, but let's assume that this false witness didn't know that. Nevertheless, he's a false witness. So I'm not going to make this another Well, it could be that this guy, even though he was a false witness, was not aware that Yahshua was referring to his body. Although, later on, Yahshua did predict that the temple would be destroyed and not a stone of it would be left standing. He did say that. Apparently, this this false witness wasn't aware of that one. Anyway, verse 62. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses against it against thee? So, first of all, I think the idea that we are not we are not we can't be compelled to witness against ourselves is biblical jurisprudence. It's Christian jurisprudence, not Jewish jurisprudence. And of course, there is no such thing as Jewish jurisprudence. There's Jewish law called the Talmud, but they make that up constantly so it can't possibly be called jurisprudence. Let's continue. Verse 63. Okay, so that's number five. So starting with these verses, we have five pieces of evidence against the Sanhedrin with Caiaphas at the head, an Edomite Jew. So it, it sounds like that the Caiaphas is try, uh, trying to compel Jesus to make a confession of some sort or even testify, and that can't be done. That's a violation of Christian biblical jurisprudence. Verse 63, But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ. Huh. Okay, 
So here again, we have Caiaphas demanding that Jesus testify against himself. Of course, this will never do, <laughs> right? I don't think there's any society. Well, of course, they torture people to make confessions, right? And in this case, they hadn't tortured him yet. That comes later. That comes later. So we see here that Caiaphas now twice has tried to compel Yahshua to make a, a, an incriminating statement against himself. Okay? And as, as they tell you, uh, if, if you make a statement in court or a court statement is made and you know it's false, you better object right away because if you don't object, then it can be held against you. So he, he finally did answer, yes. Okay, sorry, I lost my place here. I was trying to scroll down. Let me get back to where, I, where we left off. Betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Okay. So let's continue here. This uh, ESORT program is really finicky. It's so easy for it to jump out of place. <laughs> okay. So, all right. Uh, sorry, folks. I'm having trouble relocating where we left off as right toward the end of uh, Matthew chapter 26. Yeah, Jesus before Caiaphas and the council. It doesn't say Jesus before the uh, the Romans and the Roman council. It's before Caiaphas and the Jewish council. Okay? So, verse 63. But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee, by the living God, that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Well, this is not a, uh, a really important, uh, you know, it's like, we are all sons of God. We are Israelites, therefore we are the sons of God. So apparently they didn't understand biblical law, that all Israelites are the sons of God. We just need to behave accordingly. So this is really, but for them, this was like a major assertion, because they don't believe that anybody could be a son of God. Verse 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, you're the one saying that I'm the son of God. (laughs) Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the son of man, of course, this is a reference to himself, sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of whiteness, or witnesses, rather? (laughs) Witnesses, not whiteness. Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. So he's saying that he will be sitting at the right hand of the Father. They can't prove that that statement isn't true. How do they know it's blasphemy? They don't know it's blasphemy is the high priest who is blaspheming. Verse 66. The suggestion that we don't need any more witnesses is absurd because, as I understand it, the and of course I think this trial was held at night, which is the wrong time to do it, uh, any trial has to be open to the public in the daytime so that any witness in favor of the defendant can come forward. 
obviously this was not done. That's another violation of the Mosaic Law, but I won't count that because it's not listed here. If it's listed later, then I'll count it. All right, let's go. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Okay, who pronounced death? The Romans or the Jews? Number six. Verse 67. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. It wasn't Romans who did this. But this shows that it was the Jews who hated him and wanted him deaf, dead. That, otherwise, why would they smite him? It wasn't the Romans who smote him. It was the Jews. So let's count that against them too. So that's seven. Verse 68, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is he that smote thee? All right, they're mocking him. That's just a continuation of the smiting here, so I won't count that as a separate offense. And then it, uh, Peter denies Jesus. That's the conclusion of chapter 26. So now let's get into chapter 27. Where we find out that Jesus is delivered to Pilate. Matthew 27, 1. So this is where it starts to get good because we find here that Pilate has no interest whatsoever in killing Jesus. Let's go. Matthew 27, 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. Number eight. Who took counsel to put him to death? The Romans or the Jews? It's clearly the Jews. Verse two. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So why would they deliver him to Pontius Pilate, the governor? As we just discussed briefly earlier, the Romans did not give the Judeans, the power to execute anybody. So they had to take him to Pilate. Otherwise, they themselves, the entire Sanhedrin, would be subject to the death penalty for violating Roman law. Okay? So this is what the situation is. And then we have Judas hangs himself. Okay? Let's scroll down and pick it up back before Pilate. Verse 11, 20, Matthew twenty-seven, eleven. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? Now, of course, Pilate would have no interest, although he's probably aware that the Sanhedrin, maybe not the Sanhedrin, but certainly Herod, that Herod was not a Judahite, because the people of Judah were constantly demonstrating against him, telling Pilate, why do you have this foreigner ruling over us? Get rid of him. If we have to have an appointee, let it be one of our own people, not this Edomite Jew. Okay? So, so this is simply a question, art thou king of the Judeans? Would be the proper translation here, because Judea is the name of the territory the multicultural state that was created 
by Antipater, Herod, and the Romans. And Jesus said, Thou sayest, okay, so why, what's the, uh, what's the problem here? Why should, he, why should there be a problem with what Pilate, with the question that Pilate had asked? Well, the reason there's a problem is because Yahshua is king of Israel, not of the multicultural state called Judea. So again, he's, he's, chal- he's not even challenging Pilate. He's making Pilate think, you know, you've heard a rumor about me that isn't true, although he's not saying it isn't true. He's saying, well, you've heard, you're just repeating what you've heard. I am not king of Judea. I never claimed to be king of Judea. You say that I am, or you suggest that I am, but I'm not. I never came here to be king of Judea. I came to be king of Israel. Verse 12. And when he was accused of the chief priests and the elders, he answered, nothing. Silence of the lambs, right? That's another strike against the Jews. That's number nine. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? That's just a simple question. It's not an accusation by Pilate. Verse 14, And he answered him to never to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. So we continue with the scenario here because of the Barabbas scenario, where obviously Pilate is trying to get the rioting crowd (laughs) to choose Barabbas instead of Yahshua, obviously to no avail. But the episode is very important because it shows, again, that it's the Jews who wanted to kill Christ, not Pilate. Okay, my uh, e-sword is acting up again. I'm just going to have to scroll in a different way. Anyway, the governor marveled greatly. He was confused. He didn't understand what was going on. He probably did not understand that Yahshua was a pure-blooded Judahite and had nothing to do with the Edomite Jews who had usurped the kingdom, thanks to the Romans. He He certainly knew that Herod was an Edomite. But whether all of these Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the elders, so-called elders, were Judahites or Edomite Jews, he probably didn't care. So not knowing the difference between these two groups of people, he would have just been confused. Why would his own people want to be him to be dead? Well, they weren't his own people. That's the crux of the matter. Okay, verse 15. Jesus said, "My, you are not my sheep, when he spoke to the Pharisees. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So that's never been true of the Jews. The Jews are not his sheep, and they have never followed him, not even to this day. Continuing now. Now at at that feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. 
Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? So here again, Pilate is trying to exonerate, to offer another sacrificial lamb, so to speak, besides Yeshua. So that's that's a point in Pilate's favor, as all the points are in Pilate's favor. But we don't have a strike against the Jews yet. That'll come within this passage here. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom will ye that I release? Barabbas or Jesus? And, of course, the crowd choose, chooses Jesus. All right. Of course, now we have to understand here that the Pharisees were already using the tactic of uh, hiring a mob to make a large, large outcry, so they would get the poorest people of the city together, hire a mob, just like the uh, Jews do today. George Soros and company uh, hiring crisis actors. So these were crisis actors hired by the Pharisees to shout epithets against Messiah. Okay. For he knew that for envy they had delivered him. Okay, so another point in his favor. He knew that for envy they had delivered him. Now, why they would envy him, he's probably not exactly sure, but uh, because they accused him of being the son of God, could it be? And Pilate even speculates. Could he really be the son of God? Could Could he be a divine being? Walking around, verse 19, when he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? So even his wife declares him to be just. For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitude, yeah, the Hiram mob, that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. That's number 10. 10 strikes against the Jews. Verse 21. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye? (laughs) So he ignored their statement and said, Which of the two do you want me to crucify? As if to give them a second chance, right? To to disavow what they had just yelled at at the height of their voice. And and they said, Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas released. Okay, so, verse 22, Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all said unto him, Let him be crucified. That's strike number 11. You see how the evidence is piling up against the Jews, if you actually look at the evidence? Verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, oh, by the way, I should just cite John 7, 1, which says, Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. That's another strike against the Jews. So that makes 12. 
When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took the water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. Okay? Strike number 13 against the Jews. Because this was actually a Hebrew ritual that somehow Pilate was aware of, that by washing your hands in a ritual manner like this, you exonerate yourself of any wrongdoing. You declare yourself just. And that's exactly what he does. I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See you to it. Since Pilate represented Rome, he was the official representative of Rome, in Judea, that means that Rome has no interest in prosecuting Messiah. Verse 25. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. Okay. Strike number 14. Their admission that they're the ones responsible. And of course, the ADL made uh, uh, the, the, what's the name of the movie? Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, made him strike that footnote because it was a caption because the movie was done in Aramaic and with uh, English subtitles. They made him strike that subtitle so that it would not be flashed across the screen. And those so-called Christians who never read the Bible wouldn't know what was stricken from the record, okay? So, and then, let him be crucified. So they say over and over again, let him be crucified. What, uh, you know, so the evidence is piled up. We've already got 14 pieces of evidence directly blaming the Jews wanting to kill him. Not one statement that says that the Romans wanted to kill him. And he is, and Pontius Pilate ritually washes his hands, saying he is innocent of the blood of this just man. Okay, verse 26. Then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So, he delivered him to whom? It wasn't the Romans that crucified Christ. He had to turn him over to the Sanhedrin led by Caiaphas for the crucifixion. And so then we go to Jesus is mocked and there's really nothing that Pilate could do about any of this. As I said earlier, Pontius Pilate's chief mission is to maintain order and to make sure that the tribute was collected. The taxes were collected from the Judeans, right? The, this is the chief aim of all of the Roman governors in the entire uh, area under their domination. So let's go now to the Gospel of Mark, and I'm sure there's more uh, strikes against the Jews in the rest of the uh, chapter 27, but let's continue now. Mark 15. Starting with verse 1, Jesus delivered to Pilate. And straightway in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, that is the Sanhedrin, and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. So it was, of course, the Sanhedrin who bound him and tried to accuse him before Pilate. 
This is another strike against them because they're the accusers, not Pilate. Verse 2, And Pilate asked him, Art thou a king, or the king, of the Judeans? And he answered, said unto him, Thou sayest, verse 3, And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Okay, so verse 3, many things. doesn't say what they are, but who's making the accusations? Certainly isn't Pilate. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. <laughs> right? He's just pointing out the fact. Hey, these guys are accusing you of all this stuff. Why aren't you answering? Okay. Of course, that's fulfilling the prophecy that he would be a silence as a lamb. Okay. The silence of the lambs. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Verse 6. Now, of course, the heading here is Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. So the King James Version is trying its best to accuse Pilate. So, but all he does is he turns him over to the people who delivered to him to him. So he's just giving him back, right? He never accused him of anything, tried to exonerate him at all, at all turns, and never tried to uh, prosecute him in any way, shape, or form. And this is obvious from the text, so how can you get this wrong? Yeah, yeah, Swamp Fox says, Sarah Silverman hopes the Jews did kill Christ. Well, they did. <laughs> there are, you know, they like to make jokes about that but they'll never tell the truth. They can't admit they killed Jesus because if they do, then the jig is up, right? So they'll never admit it. Now, at that feast, uh, I don't, I'm not sure which feast it was. I think it's the, the, what feast it is is given in a different gospel. Anyway, now at the feast, he released unto them one prisoner whomsoever they desired, And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, and who had committed murder in the insurrection. So everybody knew that uh, Barabbas had committed murder, yet the Sanhedrin was not interested in that. They wanted to have this innocent man, this innocent God-man crucified. Verse 8. And the multitude, crying aloud, began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Will ye that I release unto you the king of the Judeans? Verse 10. For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. That's not a new fact in evidence, so uh, nevertheless, I could add it. But so far, we've got 16 counts against the Jews. But the chief priests moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. This repeating what we found in Matthew. So at least the, the Bible is consistent within itself. The, the Jews never are. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will you then that I shall do unto him whom you call the king of the Judeans? Yeah, they did call him that. But of course that's a false accusation because he never claimed to be king of Judea, he only claimed to be king of Israel. That is, the Messiah. Verse 13, 
And they cried out again, crucify him, crucify him. Well, we have to add that. Actually, I could have added all those because it's a separate witness, all those counts. So let me do that. Let me add the two as well. So that gives us 19 counts against the Jews. Verse 14. Then Pilate said unto them, What evil have he done? And they cried out more exceedingly, Crucify him! Count number 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. So yes, Pilate gave him up to the Sanhedrin, but basically told them, do with him as thou wilt. I have no responsibility for anything you do after this point. So how can you get this wrong? Well, you can get it wrong if you're a a liar. (laughs) If you're a Judeo-Christian pulpit bastard. If you're uh, a pro-Zionist. Or if you think the Jews are God's chosen people and could never do such a thing. Well, no, they're not Israelites. And they did. So let's continue. Okay, so again, we go into the area where Jesus is mocked. So it's a shorter version here. Let me just read it. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole band. Okay, so apparently this is Pilate's soldiers who uh, led him. They clothed him with purple. And purple is a sacrificial color. And plaited a crown of thorns. That is, uh, wove a crown of thorns, or uh, played, plaited, and put it about his head, and began this uh, version of Esau is just jumping around all over the place on me. Sorry. And and began to salute him, hail, King of the Judeans. Of course, they were mocking him when they were saying this. And of course, Pilate's soldiers were mocking Yahshua to please the Sanhedrin, to please the mob. Who brought the mob together? Pilate or the Jews? That's another count against them. It was the Jews who brought the mob together. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit on him. And bowing their knees, or bowing their knees, worshipped him, yeah, of course, in a mocking manner. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on on him and led him out to crucify him. Okay, so everything that Pilate does is to appease the Jews for fear of the Jews. Okay? So it's quite obvious from the scriptures that that's what's going on. So let's go to Luke chapter 23. Jesus, let me check uh, before in 22 if there's anything about uh, the, the Sanhedrin or Caiaphas in Luke before that chapter. Let's see. Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus prays on the Mount of Olives. 
Okay, betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Yeah, let's go into the betrayal and arrest of Jesus in Luke 22, verse 47, because this is pertinent. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Okay, question. Who paid Judas to betray him? Was it the Romans or the Jews? Strike number 22. When they, when they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And that's, of course, Peter. We're given Peter name in another gospel. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. So he must have picked it up off the ground. <laughs> it was more than just touching. <laughs> Excuse me. Verse 52. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves? Now that's the rhetorical question. However, it's pertinent because what have I done? I am proclaiming my innocence. There's no reason for you to come at me with violence, with the threat of arrest. Verse 53, who was threatening to arrest him? The Jews or Pilate? When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. <laughs> okay, that's a good strike because he's declaring that they have the power of darkness in them. Very pertinent stuff there. Jesus before the council, verse 66. We're still in Luke 22, verse 66. And as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Messiah? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe. <laughs> All right? That's an interesting way to answer the question. All right? He didn't deny it. That just made them even more angry, right? Verse 68. And if I also ask you, ye will not answer me, nor let me go. He knows what's going on. So do they. We know this is a mock trial. This is a or what we call today a kangaroo court. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? And he said unto them, Ye say that I am. Of course, they had heard that he was from other people. They, would, they wouldn't want to admit that anyway. Verse 71, And they said, What need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. What? And he makes a claim. And they, of course, don't know whether it's true or false. So they're just assuming it's false. Another strike against the Jews. So that makes 24. Now let's go into Luke chapter 23. 
And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. Okay, so who's the, who led him to Pilate? Again, it's the Jews. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ and king. Okay, that's a lie. He did not forbid anybody to pay tribute to Caesar. He said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and render unto God that which is God. He didn't say you shouldn't pay your taxes. Again, he evaded their accusation. And how was he perverting the nation by proclaiming himself to be the anticipated Messiah? He's, he's basically using scripture to present himself as the Messiah. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no perversion of scripture and certainly no perversion of the nature nation unless you're talking about the Edomite nation. And, and saying that he himself is Messiah, a king. And you know, of course he is Messiah of Israel, but not of Judea. And Pilate asked him, saying, Art thou then king of the Jews, or Judeans? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. Again, Pilate doesn't need to know. What Pilate does need to know is who's guilty, who's, try, who's trying to kill him. And then said Pilate unto the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. That's another strike against the Jews because Pilate is declaring that the Romans are innocent. Verse 5. And they were the more fierce, saying, He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Yeah, he was teaching. But they were never able to contradict a single word he spoke. Verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself also was at Jerusalem at that time. Okay, so this is called passing the buck, folks. <laughs> this is divine, divinely inspired passing the buck. It's obviously in favor of the Romans because Pilate was doing everything he possibly could to avoid having to uh, you know, pr- prosecute this man. Verse 8. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad, for he was desirous to see him of a long season because he had heard many things of him, and he hoped to have seen some miracle done by him. Now, of course, this Herod, Herod Antipas, was, in fact, a half-breed, the son of Mariamne, a pure upon a Judahite, and Herod. Verse 9, Then he questioned with him in many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Another strike against the Jews. So we have here 26. 26 strikes against the Jews. And the same day, oh, yeah, and uh, and Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him 
and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again back to Pilate. So the buck was passed back to Pilate. Herod didn't want to be the one to be guilty of the execution. Uh, let, let the full-blooded Jews do that. Verse 12. And the same day Pilate and Herod were made friends together, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Well, they both understood that Jesus was innocent. That's why they became friends, even though Herod Antipas was, in fact, a half-breed Jew. Verse 13. And Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. Another strike against the Jews, and a merit for Pontius Pilate. So here is Pilate saying, I, you have not produced a single shred of evidence of what you accuse him of. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Another strike against the Jews and a merit for the Romans. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For of necessity he must release one unto them at the feast. So, and then, I, I, I don't think it talks about the Barabbas episode in Luke. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified, verse 18. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, yes it does, who, for a certain sedition made in the, day, in the city, and for murder, was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. Another strike against the Jews, because Pilate clearly wants to release Jesus, not prosecute him. But they cried, saying, crucify him, crucify him. All right. Another strike against them. So we're up to 30 strikes against the Jews. And he said unto them the third time, why? What evil hath he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Another strike against the Jews. And they were instant with loud voices requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and the chief priests prevailed. Another strike against them. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. It's obvious that Pilate really had no choice because if he allowed an insurrection to occur and the tribute money to Rome would stop, then Tiberius Caesar would be extremely upset. Verse 25. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired, but he delivered Jesus to their will, all right? He's consigning Jesus to their will. Their will. The will of the Sanhedrin, which was led by Edomite Jews. So, there, this obviously states, it is their will that is done, not that of Pilate. So that's another strike against the Jews. 
okay? So, I mean, how can you read this and not realize that the Jews were responsible for the murder of Christ? You have to be brain dead or paid off. You have to be brain dead or paid off. Let's go now into the Gospel of John. Chapter 18. uh, Yeah, chapter 18. And this account is the longest of all the accounts. All right, so let's scroll to verse 12. Jesus faces Annas and Caiaphas. Now, both of these men, if indeed they be men, (laughs) okay, uh, Swamp Fox says, Barabbas was the leader of the army. His job was to protect Christ. He had been raiding the temple wagons, but they wanted Christ dead over... Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, they obviously picked an innocent man over somebody who's guilty of uh, nothing. Uh, I mean, guilty of insurrection, at least, right? Speaking of Barabbas. Okay. So, uh, yeah, let's continue because this, this gets better and better as we go along. John eighteen twelve. Then the band and the captain and officers of the Judeans took Jesus and bound him. So here we're given the fact it was the officers and soldiers of the Sanhedrin who took Jesus. Not the Roman soldiers, but the Sanhedrin. Now the Roman soldiers apparently were the ones who took him behind the scenes had the purple robe put on him and the crown of thorns and scourged him. But it was the Jews, the Jewish soldiers, who took him away and led him away to Annas first. Of course, Annas, I believe Annas is either the father-in-law or simply the predecessor, high priest predecessor of Caiaphas, but I think he's also the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Oh, yeah, it says here, for he was father-in-law to Caiaphas, which was high priest that same year. Of course, these are illegitimate high priests because they're not Levites, they're not even Judahites. Totally illegitimate. Now, Caiaphas was he which gave counsel to the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for all the people. Strike number, how many we got here now? 10, 20, 35. That's strike number 35 against the Jews. No strikes against the Romans. And then we see, uh, here's the interjection of Peter denies Jesus. So let me scroll past that. The high priest questions Jesus, John 18, 19. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Judeans always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Verse 21. Why ask you me? Ask them which heard me what I have said. Yeah, there's plenty of witnesses unto them. Behold, they know what I have said. Okay? Well, of course, The Sanhedrin knows what he said, too, because they always had spies hanging on every word he spoke and every action he he committed. 
verse 22, And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? How dare you? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why smitest thou me? Now Annas sent him bound unto Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, the more passing the buck. And of course, this time it's Edomites passing the buck. And then the interjection of Peter denying him again. Then the episode of Jesus before Pilate. Verse 18, or sorry, 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Okay, so obviously, even though these Edomites were not Judahites and not obliged to eat the Passover or celebrate Passover at all, they had to make a show of it for the benefit of the people, just as our Judeo-Christian pulpit bastards make a show of faith which they don't have. And of course, the Jews make a show of pretending to be Israel, which of course they are not. So we see that this this tendency to shed crocodile tears, make false accusations, and pretend to be something they are not, it has carried on since this time. In fact, the, the days, the 100 years before the coming of Christ, was the era in which the Edomites began to impersonate the Israelites in Judea. Verse 29. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a malefactor, we would not have delivered him up unto thee. That's a, that's a great that's a great testimony here, right? <laughs> if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him here. Well, but what's the evidence? Well, we don't have any specific evidence. Sorry. Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Yeah, and that is, we discussed this earlier, they didn't have the authority under Roman occupation to uh, do capital punishment. Verse 32. That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. And then he, well, let's go through this, this conversation with Pilate. Verse 33, then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Judeans? Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself? Or did others tell it thee of me? <laughs> All right? As we speculated earlier, yeah, he had heard the rumor, and that's why he's asking the question. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? So it's quite obvious that Pilate is mystified as to what crime he might have committed. Verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. To who? (laughs) Strike number 36. 
But now is my kingdom not from hence. Okay, so it's not yet. It is a future kingdom. We're anticipating that very soon, folks. Verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And it's obvious the Jews can't hear his voice. Now this is, again, this is kind of a half answer. Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. Is he saying that I was born to be a king? And for this cause, that's what it sounds like. It's it's two statements. There should be a semicolon here. To this end was I born, to be, to be king, king of Israel. Semicolon. And for this cause came I unto the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. So he's obviously saying that the Jews are not of the truth. Pilate saith unto him, What is the truth? What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto them, I find in him no fault at all. Strike number 37. Especially to those liars who say the Romans killed Christ. But ye have a custom that I should release unto you one of the, at the Passover. Will ye therefore that I release unto you the king of the Judeans? Then they cried, they all again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. End of chapter 18. Now chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. So the most they can accuse Pilate of is scourging him, having his soldiers mock him, and weaving a crown of thorns to put on his head and make him wear a a sacrificial robe. And the soldiers planted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe and said, Hail, King of the Judeans. Of course, they were mocking. They, They didn't care whose king he was. And they smote him with their hands. Okay, so uh, whipping and smiting. The only, and the the crown of thorns were physical acts against Jesus, but not his death. Verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Yet again. Strike number 38 against the Jews because this exonerates Rome. Then came Jesus forth wearing, I have to scroll up, the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man! When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Strike number 39. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him again. Pilate finds no fault in him. It's the Jews, only the Jews, who find fault in him. And it's the Jews, and only the Jews, who want him crucified. 
Number seven. The Jews answered him. Oh, sorry. Uh, I read the... Wait a minute. Okay, yeah, verse seven. Then the Jews answered him, we have a law. And by our own law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Okay, so according to their, which they didn't cite, <laughs> right? There's no citation. There's no evidence. Still no evidence presented by the Pharisees against Jesus. Verse eight. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more afraid. Now, why would Pilate be afraid? Because he knew that the scribes and Pharisees and the Sanhedrin were bound and determined to push push this issue to the point where there would be a revolt. And I don't know how many soldiers Pilate had under his charge. I think it was only like a couple of hundred soldiers. But of course, he could call up uh, legions at any time he wanted, but that would take time. But I think what he was more afraid of was the displeasure of Tiberius Caesar, who would not want the flow of tribute interrupted by uh, by a revolution. Okay, so that's why Pilate was even more afraid. He's already afraid when his wife told him, "Be careful what you do to this man." <laughs> I had a dream. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Verse 9. And went again into the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? Who are you? What's all this about? What's going on? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Yeah, he had that power and he was still of a mind to do it. Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me, except that were given to thee from above. Okay, he's saying this is something that has to happen. The Father has decreed it. It must happen, and you can't do anything about it. He even rebuked Peter when Peter tried to pretend that he could prevent his execution and Yahshua said to him, get thee behind me, Satan. I have to do this. Don't try to talk me out of it. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to do this. Don't try to talk me out of it. Now, the crucial verse. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Strike number 41. Who delivered him to Pilate? Well, it was Caiaphas. Caiaphas, with all the authority of the Sanhedrin, the scribes and Pharisees, the uh, Sadducees, the entire because the Sanhedrin represented the Judean leadership, which was installed by Herod, but the whole process was initiated by Antipater, his father, and Herod by bribery of the Roman army to have Antipater and Herod installed as usurpers, as foreign rulers. So we have a dual occupation here of the Romans and the Edomite Jews. But the Edomite Jews were the instigators of this whole thing. They are the instigators. And Roman just came along for the ride, seeing, well, okay, if, if these people want to hand us the, this 
country called Judea over to us, and they'll do the fighting for us. Let's go for it. So who's the more guilty? It's really obvious, folks. This seals the deal. If you run into anybody who says the Romans killed Christ, just cite John 19.11, because Jesus clearly says that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin have the greater sin. Verse 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. Another strike against the Jews and for Rome. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whoa! That's a threat. That's a threat. We'll go over your head if we have to. We'll make a direct appeal to Caesar. And what what, what they're going to say to Caesar? Well, if you don't crucify Yahshua, we will have an insurrection and you won't collect any more taxes for who knows when or how long. Whosoever maketh a king speaketh against Caesar. (laughs) Right, okay. That's a threat, folks. That's a threat. Verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Verse 14, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. Verse 15, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Strike number 48. Or, sorry, 44. Strike number 44. Crucify him, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests out answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow. There it is, folks. They have no king but Caesar. Their allegiance is to Caesar. Why? Because they installed Caesar. They installed Herod and Antipater and all the Edomite Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, etc., who have become the Sanhedrin, with a few exceptions. There are there a few Judahites in the Sanhedrin. Verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. Again, this is the soldiers of the Sanhedrin who led him away to be crucified, not the Roman soldiers. So that's another strike against the Jews again. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Where they, who's they? Who wanted him dead? Were they crucified him? Another strike against the Jews. On either side, one and Jesus, oh, sorry, uh, crucified him. 
and two other with him on either side, one, and Jesus in the midst. So this is before the crucifixion here simply means putting them up on a cross or a stake. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus Nazarenus Rex Judeorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, or Judeans. Verse 20. This title then read many of the Judeans, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh unto the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Judeans, but that he said, I am the king, uh, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. All right, so they utterly reject his claim to be king of anything. That is actually another strike against the Jews because they are not, not Israelites. And the whole point here is for us to demonstrate to the Judeo-Christians that the Jews have no, have no interest in becoming Christians, have no interest in following Christ, have no interest in obeying Scripture. Verse 22, Pilate answered, What I have written... I have written. So don't bother me about this anymore. I'm sick of you people. Verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. Again, this is another fulfillment of Scripture. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These kings, therefore, the soldiers did. Or these things, rather, the soldiers did. Okay, so it's, it's pretty obvious. So we have at least 47 strikes against the Jews and not one against Pilate. The only thing that Pilate could be accused of is out of desperation and fear of being removed or rebuked by Tiberius Caesar. That What do you call this? Uh, well, certainly intimidation and threats against Pilate. It's blackmail. The only, he was blackmailed to do this under the threat of insurrection. So, if somebody's being blackmailed, isn't the blackmailer just as guilty as the one? But he didn't kill him, so he's really not guilty. The only thing he's guilty of is caving in for his own sake to the mob created by the Jews. That's all he is guilty of. He cannot be accused of being the killer of Christ. Therefore, Rome is exonerated. Okay, so we have about 30 minutes left. And so, I mean, this is the, and I'm sure there's more evidence in the scriptures than what I have recounted here. But uh, the four gospels all exonerate Rome and accuse the Jews, period. It's, it's blatantly obvious. There's no, there's no argument. So that 
pulpit master that I quoted earlier who said the Romans killed Christ is a liar. Period. He's nothing but a liar. But that's what we have for so-called Christian pastors these days. So with these kind of liars, the average Christian actually believes that the Romans killed Christ and not the Jews. But of course, they're, they're up to their dirty tricks even today, telling these lies about Scripture constantly. So I have in my possession here a book entitled Pontius Pilate and the Jews. Originally edited from the autobiography of G. Pontius Pilate by C.M. Franzero. So, Pilate wrote an autobiography. Why has this been kept from the world? By the way, this book is printed by, let's see here, George Allen Unwin, 1947. Selected material edited from the original edition by William S. Legrand. So, 1947. I just happened to have this, spot this copy in my library. I don't even remember how I got this book. But it was republished in 1991, copyright 1991, by James K. Warner, who was head of the Christian Defense League and published the uh, uh, several, two monthly magazines, Christian Identity magazines. He was a follower of Dr. Wesley Swift. So, on page 73, after Pilate, oh, after the Salome episode and asking for the head of John the Baptist, after that episode, (laughs) he says, let me uh, start at the second paragraph The girl Salome bowed to him and begged to leave to retire and consult her mother. Of course, her mother was a full-blooded Edomite. When she returned to the banqueting hall, she asked to be given the head of John the Baptist. It was a gruesome request. And remember, these are the words of Pontius Pilate. But also a cunning one. More than one guest smiled slyly or bowed his head to cover a sneer. Antipas looked startled at this beautiful stepdaughter who was still arrayed in the veils of the dance. Then, probably feeling that he had compromised himself before the company, he motioned to a soldier of the guard and commanded him to bring the prisoner's head. Presently, the head of the man was brought in on a a salver, or a plate, and presented to Salome. Without the flicker of an eye, the girl took the salver in her arms and brought it out to her mother. No one spoke. Antipas signaled to the servants. Antipas is uh, Herod Antipas. The symbols were surrounded or sounded, and the banquet proceeded. I had never seen at any feast a more disgusting lack of taste. <laughs> Indeed, to to say the least. Talk about understatement. The following year, shortly before the weekend preceding the annual feast of Passover, I arrived in Jerusalem and took up residence in the palace. Soon, the commander of the garrison in Antonia informed me that there were, we were to expect disturbances. 
Nor was I greatly surprised. Reports had been reaching me for many months that the man Jesus had made great strides with his preaching, and his followers could now be counted as a multitude. He had now been preaching for about two years, and one had to admit that he had steadily gained in popular favor, in spite of the terrific efforts of the hierarchical priesthood to check him. That's another strike because it's plainly obvious that Pilate had no interest in in crucifying Jesus. It was the hierarchical priesthood, the Sanhedrin. His claims and his activities had indeed become the engrossing topic of the day. There had also been extraordinary stories of miracles. I am myself rather skeptical about preternatural happenings. And it was indeed a long time since anything of that sort was seen in Rome or anywhere else for that matter. Yet I had heard the deeds of this man reported as genuine by persons who would have rather preferred to discount them. Stories of healing I did not consider of great importance, for the world has always been full both of magical healers and of invalids ready ready to be cured at the merest touch of the healer's hands. But there were other stories that either required to be discounted forthwith or else investigated. Not long before it seemed that the man had done something truly amazing, at some quiet spot on the lake of Tiberias, somewhere near Bethsaida, which means fish house, a village recently enlarged and beautified by Philip, tetrarch of Eteria, or sorry, Ituria, who had erected some buildings in the Greek style and called the place Bethsaida Julius in honor of the beautiful but ill-famed daughter of Augustus. The man Jesus was there, I had heard, with his habitual escort of disciples, and a great crowd had assembled, as was now usual wherever he went. It was towards evening, and the company showed no signs of dispersing. Food could not be had in that lonely spot, and his disciples, afraid of this, urged him to send the crowd away. But he told them that the crowd must be fed. It would not do to dismiss them hungry. And he told his disciples to make a multitude sit down and to divide into groups of fifties and hundreds. And he took some bread and fishes and the disciples had with them and looking up to heaven, blessed the food and proceeded to hand portions to the disciples who passed them to the crowd. And with five loaves of bread and two small fishes he he fed, people said, 5,000 men and women and children and there were many baskets left over. This is a retelling of the gospel account by an eyewitness Pontius Pilate. Now, well, actually, his his spies were the witnesses. He was present there. Now, were those people mad in imagining that they had been fed? Or was this man, Jesus, really a person of supernatural powers? Strangely enough, I remember reading in one report that after this extraordinary feat, the man seemed suddenly to have become afraid of, enthousi- of the enthusiasm of the people and had hastily bidden his disciples to embark with him on their boat, crossing the lake in the direction of Capernaum. For the crowd on the shore was acclaiming him a true prophet and marked king of the Judeans. As I have said, he had taken a not to not going about with following the... Let me, this is poorly stated. Uh, Gibbs is the first time commenting, been listening for... Eli may find it interesting that living... Loving Life TV made a video about a study three Italian surgeons released 
It showed that the blood work of 948 post-injected patients, Pfizer 94.23% had unknown metallic partials in their blood. I've got that too, and I don't know how it got into my blood because I didn't take a, a jab. Maybe it's from old jabs. I don't know. It could very well be. Thanks for bringing it up, Gibson. All right, let's continue. As I have said, he had taken to going about with a following of 12 men who were calling themselves his disciples, quite simple folk who followed him everywhere. And now I had heard that he was beginning to send them out on their own to to preach on his behalf. People called them apostles and said that he had endowed them with the power of healing. That is, the thing was no longer merely sporadic. It was developing into a regular movement. Palestine is a queer land, completely God-mad, a real paradise for prophets and faith exploiters. But this new movement was all wrong, and it was bound to alarm the religious authorities and also to cause concern for me. For the whole life of Palestine rested on religion, and to upset the established state of things was to upset the course of civil life. That's for sure. And everything that happened concerning this man, Jesus, seemed to violate or even to subvert the rules by which the Jewish people, as he calls them, the Judean people, were accustomed to abide. Again, there's no way that Pilate could understand the difference between Judahites and Judeans. So, you know, he's just an outsider. A foreigner coming to America would think that blacks, the Latinos, and the Asians were Americans. And everything that happened concerning this man, Jesus, seemed to violate or even to subvert the rules by which the Jewish people were accustomed to abide. Again, not long ago, I was told a man was asked to dine at the house of a person of good social position named Simon, a member of the Pharisee party, who obviously wanted to show him to his guests. But while they were all in the dining hall, there came in among the couches a woman, a most extraordinary occurrence. For women could not with propriety make their appearance at such entertainments. And more extraordinary still, this woman knelt beside the man Jesus and proceeded to wash his feet with fragrant ointment, all the time weeping in great distress and wiping the tears from his feet with her long hair and covering his feet with kisses. Gee, I wish a woman would treat me like that. The woman appeared to be a public prostitute and was quite loosely dressed and unveiled. The other guests were horrified, (laughs) not only at the unseemly scene, but even more, as it was afterwards explained to me, at the idea that a man who professed to be a rabbi should allow such a woman or indeed any woman to approach him, at least in public. It was contrary to all traditions. Yet, I was told, the man Jesus had turned to the weeping woman at his feet and said to her simply, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. His spies are reporting accurately. Thenceforward, a group of women had attached themselves to him besides the twelve disciples. Things such as these and many others that I heard at the time, but the details of which have fairly escaped my memory, brought about a state of tension which I could easily foresee would soon cease to be merely religious and would become political. Rumors, too, of possible action against him by Herod Antipas, under whose jurisdiction he fell, increased the difficulty of the situation. Everyone knew that this man, Jesus, and many of his followers had come from the school of John, 
whom Herod had put to death. And to Herod, it was enough to hint at that man's name to send him into a frenzy. I was indeed beginning to wonder whether this man Jesus was bent on sowing the seeds of a revolution. And so did all politically minded people, not at least the hierarchical parties. Of course, he's talking about the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Already, one official step towards the repression of the new movement had taken place on the occasion of the man's last visit to Jerusalem. It seems that the crowds had reported that Jesus had cured a blind man on the Sabbath day, and this in itself was considered by the priests a crime of the first magnitude. I could fill pages in setting down all the things that could not be done on a Sabbath day. To us, the rules on this point seem quite insane. To tie a camel driver's knot was unlawful. <laughs> now, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> that, that's one of the rules of the Sanhedrin. Of course, the Pharisees make up their own rules. Okay, yeah, okay, Gibson, I'll check the, those things out. Uh, it's quite possible that and I'm sure through my line of work in construction, I have breathed in many small, because the my blood work showed that I had many particles of metal in my blood, smaller than the blood cells. So those must have been breathed in or maybe even rubbed in, hard to say. They're very small particles. Nevertheless, that's probably why I have the sensitivity to uh, to radiation because I'm, I'm a walking <laughs> I'm a walking uh, bag of metallic particles. Not much I can do about it now, although I think there is a potential cure. I've been talking to people about it. Uh, there's several things, uh, uh, boron in water, uh, activated charcoal, and uh, other methods, EDTA, are things that are able to take metals out of the body. So I've started that process, and I just began that process. Uh, but uh, I've been doing much, much better lately than I have when all this stuff started happening. So th- thanks for the information. Okay. Uh, okay, so yeah, Oath Keepers membership list is now public. Yeah, so the, the Jews are going all out to identify any terrorists, right? <laughs> even the oath, oh, even though the Oath Keepers are not a separatist organization like we are. They are nevertheless Christian. And the Jews hate Christians with a passion. And the Rothschilds a hundred times more. Right? So, yeah. And uh, so, but this fulfills the prediction made by David Goldberg, I believe it was in 2018, that the Rothschilds were intending on killing tens of thousands of people who do not worship the Israeli state. And so this is what's happening. They're definitely trying to follow through on that. We'll see what happens if they try to arrest the Second Amendment crowd. That will be something when they try to do that. So so, so I'd say Pilate really understands the situation well from his perspective and he understands the, how how religion, yeah, the Red Terror is going to be unleashed, right? It's already, already been unleashed, you know, with the uh, last couple of years with the uh, terrorism uh, due to uh, 
that, that black guy in Minnesota, right? So, uh, they, but they've uh, it, they've opted for a, a policy of staging false flag events in the meantime, right? Uh, there's no way the Rothschilds have enough power. I don't care how many soldiers they have to overcome the the Second Amendment Americans. There's no way it's not going to happen. They'll have to try though because they're. They're, they're, they're all out. They can't back off now. They can't admit they were wrong about anything. So they have to take it all away. All right. So let's let's have it out. Let's have it out. I mean, there's. I, I talked to so many white nationalists and identities. I said, okay, let's get it on. Right. See who wins. <laughs> right. Let's get it on. Okay, Rothschild, give it your best shot. So anyway, so uh, uh, to tie a camel driver's knot was unlawful, and equally it was forbidden to write two letters if they could be read together, although one could write them in the, ro- in the road dust or in the sand. It was even unlawful to attend any sick person on such a day. So Jesus was accused by the priest of performing an unlawful act, but his answer had been, quote, if the priest who officiates on the Sabbath is held blameless, though he is in fact breaking the holy day, what is lawful for the servant of the temple must be lawful for many servants to do on that day. Unquote. Now, this is a very interesting way of stating it because this is not the way the gospel states it. But I remember I have made the same argument that the priests, that they're doing their job on the Sabbath day. They have to drain the blood from the animals. They have to clean the, clean the altars. They, they have to go through all the rituals. That's their job. So the priests are performing their job working on the Sabbath day. But of course, that was an exception for them. They probably had a different day off. Okay? So, nevertheless, for the average Israelite, that Sabbath was was sacred. Okay? And then, this is a very interesting way of putting it. Let me repeat this. If the priest who officiates on the Sabbath is held blameless, though he is in fact breaking the holy day, what is lawful for the servant of the temple must be lawful for many servants to do on that day, unquote. Which was clever and logical, <laughs> but it did not help matters. The fact was, as I knew only too well, that spies sent from Jerusalem dogged his steps and noted his words and acts and reported them to the ecclesiastical authorities they were in power and did not mean to be bothered and obstructed by such a man. Already they had been touched in their tenderest susceptibilities by the preaching of John, and they held that to go on teaching against the law was revolutionary in its deeper sense, even if the revolution was limited to the belief of the Sabbath. It was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The man, Jesus, was definitely heading for trouble. Indeed, the day before the celebrations at the temple began, Caiaphas, escorted by Annas, came to see me. They said they feared that Jesus would come to Jerusalem. In fact, they had reports that he meant to come with a large following. There might be trouble, they said, and it should be wiser if I would arrest him before he entered the city. Again, who are the instigators? I refused. What had the man done to warrant such a step on my part? And might it not happen that such a decision would bring about that very popular revolt that they were trying to avoid? 
Very logical. His followers might say that I had laid hands on a holy Jew. Some little time previously, news had run high in Jerusalem that Jesus had resurrected a dead man called Lazarus. The man had already been in his tomb four days. It was one of those graves belonging to the wealthier Judeans, formed of a recess hewn horizontally into the rock with a slab or massive stone to close the entrance. Jesus had made the relatives remove the slab. And when the grave was uncovered, he had stood at the entrance and cried, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man had arisen, swathed in his ghastly garments, with the napkin round the head which had upheld the jaw, bound hand and foot and face, and he had walked forth. I was told that that day the Sanhedrin had met in a spirit of great perplexity, and I could well believe it. The miracle was true. It could not be denied. There were too many witnesses. Who was there to prevent the populace from calling him a holy prophet and their king? They dared not, at least not publicly. Caiaphas sent me several reports. He liked to word them like foreign office notes. Some read like presses, others like mere notes verbales, but always so formal like the communications of an ambassador from one power to another. He would have me laugh had he not been so cunning and damned clever. And, of course, I knew quite well what was in the mind of the Sanhedrin. The priests feared that should a popular disturbance occur, Rome might intervene militarily and put an end to the political existence of a theocracy that had proved unable to prevent such heresies and revolutionary disturbances. Pilate was totally aware of what was going on. He was totally aware of what the scribes, Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin were. The deliberations of the Sanhedrin were usually kept very secret. But that day some news percolated to me. It was that Caiaphas had told the Sanhedrin that the only solution was to sacrifice one victim. Indeed, this fiat of Caiaphas, uttered in the secrecy of the Sanhedrin, became instantly known throughout Jerusalem. Man, rumors travel fast, right? Was the news deliberately spread to impress the people or me? I wondered. On the Tuesday, the priest put to Jesus this question, quote, Is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Is it in accordance with the allegiance we owe to God as king to recognize any other king as we do if we pay taxes to Caesar? Again, they admit they pay taxes to Caesar. The worst they accuse him of is him of is teaching the same thing they teach <laughs> or doing the same thing they do. It was on a similar reasoning that some 20 years before my time, Judas the Golanite had based his fierce revolt against payment of the tax demanded after the census of Quirinius. And his name was still venerated by the closely packed multitude that now stood around Jesus awaiting his answer. In fact, Every Judean expected from Jesus a stern avowal of the illegality of the demand for taxes. The man answered, quote, Bring me the coin you pay as the Roman tax, unquote. A denarius was presently brought to him, a coin which the Jews hated intensely, <laughs> for it was the coin in which the poll tax was paid. Moreover, 
They considered idolatrous the image of Tiberius on the coin and the words of his authority. The man, Jesus, said, quote, Whose image and superscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. In other words, you guys are already paying these taxes, you dumbasses. Why are you asking me when you're already doing it? It was a clever answer, Pilate says. But the priests grasped at once that it introduced an entirely new conception of the relations of church and state. The church in Judea had until then been identical with the nation. Indeed, the church was the nation, and the law of that church, the law of the people, the only law they admitted. For the laws of Rome were by them considered contrary to their sacred law. Even in Rome, church and state were, in certain respect, identical. Caesar was Pontifex Maximus as well as emperor. The colleges of priests and augurs were political institutions whose membership was controlled by the emperor. The words of the man Jesus implied that the sphere of the state was to be considered as a separate from the sphere of the conscience. The idea was certainly a menace to the recognized order of things. And this claim, as the Jewish mind was disposed to see it, could easily be interpreted as a challenge to the emperor's authority or their authority. In the evening, Caiaphas, the high priest, informed me on behalf of the ecclesiastical college that he proposed to effect the arrest of of a false messiah, dangerous to the authority of Rome. No, dangerous to their authority. And as he feared an attempt to rescue the man by the populace, he asked for a band of soldiers from the garrison in Antonia. In the circumstances, I could not but grant the request as the garrison acted as police. During the night, Nicodemus called on me and beginning to be, and begging to be forgiven for disturbing my sleep, gave me a full report of the trial which had already taken place before the Sanhedrin. I stopped counting demerits against the Jews, but there are several in here already. But this final one, this, the trial which had already taken place before the Sanhedrin, bypassing the authority of Rome. Folks, there is no doubt the Jews killed Christ. Could it be otherwise? Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Yahweh bless. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.